Hello and welcome to the Interactive Investor Podcast, where we discuss matters of investment interest. I'm Richard Hunter, Head of Markets, and in this episode, I'm delighted to be joined by investment trust aficionado, Jonathan Davis. Jonathan began his career as a financial journalist on The Times, Sunday Telegraph, and The Independent before qualifying as a professional investor. He's a member of the Chartered Institute for Securities and Investment and the author of several books on stock market investment, as well as editor of the annual Investment Trust's Handbook. Well, first and foremost, Jonathan, uh, a very warm welcome to you and thank you for sparing us some of your time. It's a pleasure. There's a lot of time around to be enjoyed at the moment, uh, <laughs> even though I find myself busier than ever. But uh, thank you. Anyway. I, I know the feeling. Uh, which leads us rather sweetly, of course, into the uh, the kind of market turmoil that we've been seeing recently. Um, if you could sort of just give us a, a sort of brief synopsis, as you see it, between the, the kind of differences between uh, an investment trust and what we used to call a unit trust or a mutual fund or open-ended, whatever you want to call it, and whether perhaps uh, that recent market tur- turmoil has put any of those differences uh, into into clearer perspective. It certainly has. The market turmoil, as you say, has been uh, quite dramatic this year. We had a terrible sell-off in March uh, and and signs of panic in some quarters. Uh, And investment trusts have held up very well uh, on average during that period. Uh, And that's partly to do with the reasons that people like myself do like investment trusts. They are what I like to call the the connoisseur's choice when it comes to funds investing. They're not, uh, some of them are very, very good and some of them are not so good, which is true of all kinds of, of funds. But investment trusts do have some inherent advantages for that certainly uh, more sophisticated investors at least can uh, take advantage of. And that's a lot to do with their structure. They are legal. They are companies listed on the stock market. They have a board of directors which is accountable to shareholders. It's not quite the same for open-ended funds. There's less direct um, responsibility and accountability uh, in open-ended funds. And they can have other advantages such as use of gearing, Uh, and they have a wider choice of assets uh, which they look after. Against that, there are some disadvantages, increasing the fact that they tend to be more volatile, the share prices are more volatile than the unit prices of an open-ended fund, uh, and you have to understand uh, how they work in order to profit from that. And presumably that's one of the reasons why there are certain houses who choose to, to run both investment trusts and unit trusts under the same umbrella almost. Absolutely. Uh, there is some evidence, though it's not possible to prove it uh, statistically to the, the levels of certainty you'd like, but there is some evidence that uh, closed-ended funds that do the same job as an open-ended fund uh, do tend to outperform uh, a little bit over time, typically around about 1% per annum, which can obviously compound into something quite significant. Against that, there is a lot to be said for the convenience uh, of the open-ended uh, fund structure And that's one reason why a lot more marketing effort goes into uh, selling, if you like, uh, open-ended funds than it does into closed-ended funds or investment trusts, as we like to call them. Sure. Of course, uh, a fairly topical debate that's going on at the moment um, is around the question of dividends. Um, It may be through regulatory uh, interference that the banks and the like, for example, have had to defer or postpone their dividends, at least for the time being, very possibly uh, for the end of the year. And of course, the uh, the FTSE 100 itself has been a traditionally generous pair of dividends, usually yielding somewhere between four and four and a half percent. But of course, in terms of investment trusts, 
at this difficult time when some dividends are under threat, they have something of a, an ace up their sleeve, do they not? They do indeed. And that is one of their inherent advantages that I referred to earlier. And that advantage is that they have the ability, not the obligation, but they have the ability to hold back some of the dividend income that they receive from the companies they've invested in. Uh, and they can hold them back for a rainy day. Uh, in other words, they don't have to pay the whole thing out as dividends to their own shareholders. And typically they can hold back about 15, up to 15% of their revenue uh, that they get each year from dividends. Uh, they can hold that back and then they can use that as a resource to fall back on when dividends are under threat, as they are now. As you all know, Richard, the, a lot of companies have said that because of the lockdown and because of the uncertainty about how long that's going to last, that they are going to have to either suspend or in some cases even cancel their dividends uh, this year because of the uncertainty. And we're looking at something like a reduction of between 30 and 50% on some estimates in the dividend income paid by UK listed companies this year. So this gives the opportunity for investment trusts uh, that uh, have the capacity to do this to go on paying dividends at the rate they were paying last year. In other words, they can smooth their income out over a period of time uh, by, by using these reserves that they built up. And we've seen that very clearly in the equity income sector of the investment trust world, where equity income funds have all said that they're going to try and keep their dividends going to shareholders this year at the same rate as last year, and in some cases even still increase them, despite what's going on in the wider world. So that's very much an advantage within the investment trust sphere. Have, have there been any notable casualties, uh, even within the investment trust uh, world? Oh yes, absolutely. I mean, it would be wrong to give the impression that somehow all investment trusts are doing fine uh, in relative terms, at least, uh, while, uh, <coughs> while other funds are not. I mean, I can give you a figure, a couple of figures. This year, the, the uh, all share index is down around, uh, at the end of last week, was down about 23, 24%. And the average equity investment trust uh, listed on the London market is down by around 15%. So that's about 7 or 8% uh, better off. But that covers a wide range of different experiences. Quite a lot of investment trusts do not just invest in uh, in stocks and shares. They invest in more uh, other kinds of assets, what we call alternative assets, such as property, private equity, and even some more exotic things like uh, royalties from pop songs. Uh, and some of these alternative asset trusts have not done very well at all. They've lost significant amounts of value over the during the course of the crisis. And some investment trusts too uh, have have suffered as well in particular sectors. So, for example, the property investment trusts have all reporting that they're no longer collecting as much rent from their from their clients, from the people who uh, occupy the buildings they own, uh, because of the lockdown, and so their dividends are all being cut as well. So it's not a, it's not a, a uniform story, but it is overall a slightly more encouraging one in relative terms. And that's interesting because presumably the way the that pressure on, for example a property investment trust, the way that would manifest itself presumably would be by a lower share price in terms of um, excess selling of, of clients wishing to exit the investment trust, which of course is or can be a totally different story uh, to an open-ended fund where you can see a, a, a suspension uh, coming down the line as we've seen a couple in the last, uh, last year or so. Absolutely. Uh, and it's a question of which of those, uh, if you like, two evils you prefer, whether you like to be, whether you prefer to be locked into something which is falling in value and which you can't get your money out if you wanted to, 
or whether you want to see the value of your property fund investment fall quite sharply, uh, but you have the privilege, if such it is, of being able to sell the shares if you really wanted to. Now, whether you should or not is another matter, something else we could discuss in different, different contexts perhaps, um, but it is, uh, it is horses for courses in that sense. Yes, open-ended funds, you tend to get suspensions, you can't, you can't deal, you can't get your money out, uh, and investment trusts, you can deal, you can get a price, but it may not be a price you particularly like. Sure. Obviously, one of the, the beauties of the topic we're talking about is the very um, diversification, which uh, investment trusts or open-ended funds give you de facto. That's not to say, of course, as you've been explaining, that they've been anything like immune uh, from the wider um, economic downturn and the wider market downturn for obvious reasons. Are you getting the sense from any particular sort of sex, sector or maybe geography in terms of what the outlook might be for the next three to six months, which I think is generally accepted to be the, the, the very much the most difficult period resulting from this pandemic? Well, I think it, it certainly is a, a very difficult period to forecast, as we know. Uh, the economists are having great trouble in even getting anywhere near any kind of consensus number about how badly the economy is going to be hit, because we simply don't know. We don't know how long the lockdown is going to last. We don't know if it, if uh, firms do gradually go back to work. We don't know how quickly it will take them to get back to where they were before. And we don't know indeed whether they will be able to get back to the, where they were before because of problems with their supply chains or so on and so forth. Um, so in answer to your question, I mean, one obvious place where you can shelter or have been sheltered in a relative way uh, in, in the investment trust sector, you can own some of these uh, investment trusts, which basically invest across a wide range of assets themselves. They are diversified uh, funds, including all sorts of different kinds of assets. And some of them indeed are rather like family offices. You can invest alongside uh, a wealthy family like the Rothschilds or the Kayser family who've yeah. been running investment trusts to look after their own money for many, many years, uh, indeed a century in some cases. Uh, and you can be pretty certain you're going to get a very well diversified uh, portfolio that way, managed by some very expert people who have access to kinds of things that you and I perhaps might not be able to access. So that's one, that's one place where one can hide quite safely. Uh, as I said, the equity income trusts are doing relatively well. Um, a lot of them have at least a, year, a year's worth of dividends uh, in their reserves, which they can call on if they need to. And their share prices have held up very well so far, year to date. The things that have not done so well, I mean, if I look at the uh, the other sectors done well, obviously there's anything to do with technology, uh, continues to do well. The Googles, the Amazons, all those things are doing so well in the stock market. And funds that invest in those, there are some specialist technology funds, have done very well. Some of them are actually still up, to, up on the year to date, like... Uh, Scottish Mortgage is, is a very well-known one. It owns all, a lot of those uh, big online companies. Uh, and then they have uh, some of the Bailey Griffith growth funds are done very well this year. They're up as well because their particular kind of investing has done well. And some of the specialist uh, property uh, investment trusts have also done well, surprisingly, but they're the ones whose revenues are paid by the government. So they're the only people who can be sure of getting their rents in this uh, in this period. I, I was simply going to make the point on the technology front that, um, astonishingly, to some extent, you mentioned how much the all share was down in the year today. Our own FTSE 100, about 23% down as we speak. But we've seen something of a, a, a last-minute recovery so far anyway. The NASDAQ 
index in the States, which is uh, the technology-laden company, of course. It's down just under 4% in the year today. So it's, a, it's had a, a real resurgence of late as people have started to realise that in this new world, uh, whether it's going to be temporary or more permanent, um, usually there's some element of technology involved somewhere along the line, as indeed you and I are speaking right now. Yes, and I think obviously we are using uh, Zoom, and Zoom is one of the shares in the United States which has done extraordinarily well. Everybody seems to be using Zoom now. It just happens to be the, in the right place at the right time, and its shares have done very well this year. And I'm just looking down some of the lists of the, of the investment trusts that have done well this year. So there's Bailey Gifford US Growth, which invests in similar kind of companies, is up uh, 18% this year. We've got Scottish Mortgage up 9%. We've got uh, Polar Capital Technology, a specialist technology fund, very nice, good fund, been going for years, very, very strong record. It's up at 6% this year. And there's also a biotech fund, which is up this year. But these are all diversified funds. They're not like we're betting all on one, on one share. So you're not going to get dramatic movements. Uh, you're not going to get 50% rises in short periods of time. But they are well diversified, managed by uh, expert professional fund managers. So they've done well. On the downside, of course, we've got Lots of things have done not so well, and amongst them are a lot of emerging market funds. Trusts have done pretty poorly. Uh, there's some of these specialists in uh, alternative asset funds, which uh, invest in things like debt securities, not the kind of thing you want to own in this kind of market, I have to say. Uh, and uh, also some of the uh, energy funds more recently have been hit by the decline in the price of oil. So there have been you know, losers, and some of them have been pretty dramatic. Some of them are down 40%, 35% even 50% in one case this year. So um, I'm afraid it all depends where you are. And of course, one of the interesting things about this crisis is that because it is so uneven in the way it affects different uh, kinds of industries, that some companies you'd expect to do very well, or have been doing very well, have been hit disproportionately hard. Anything to do with retail or travel, tourism, that kind of thing, has been really badly hit. While others which uh, have been plodding along uh, have actually done quite well. So this virus is very... Uh, how should we say, it's very unfair in the, way it's, in the way it's affecting different sectors of the economy. And it's uh, causing, obviously, a lot of uh, anxiety in boardrooms and, uh, indeed, amongst investors generally. Absolutely right. And, of course, when, when you get, uh, certainly as we saw in March, these indiscriminate share price markdowns, you've now got the UK banks, for example. Uh, Lloyd's uh, share price is pretty much halved uh, in the year today. And now it's had another plank taken away from it is a potential investment destination now that it's not paying dividends um, yeah. you, do, you do begin to question of course that there are st still some quality companies out there uh, who have not had an opportunity uh, to, to display their strength either because their results have been postponed uh, for regulatory reasons for a couple of weeks or indeed because they quite simply can't give any forward guidance at the moment absolutely I mean if you're running uh, an airline for example uh, you know there are some planes still flying uh, but we all know that the airline business is a, uh, is a, is a, is a very uh, highly geared business, which means that you operate with very small margins. It doesn't take much to, uh, to knock you out of business. So they're all gone to the government with begging bells asking for money, and uh, I'm sure they'll get some. The question, of course, for the shareholders is, well, is there going to be anything left for us when, that, uh, when that's all over? If there is, then you can expect it to rebound quite strongly when and if we get out of this uh, particular economic uh, crisis. Uh, but if not, then you're going to find yourself maybe uh, looking at something that is not worth very much, going the way of Thomas Cook, you know, which would be uh, sure. would not be a good precedent we want to we want to follow. Finally, Jonathan, do you, do you have any particular views in terms of dividend incomes? I'm, I'm thinking again 
uh, if we consider the UK banks. There, there's no question that there is enough in the kitty for them to have continued paying dividends, but obviously they were, they were getting pressure from the regulators to retain as much capital as possible with a view to lending it out. Is there, do you think, a possibility that once we're over the hump of this and we, and we get back to some of, some sort of economic normality, there could actually be um, a kind of dividend bonanza for those firms which had put this dividend money effectively to one side uh, and it wasn't ultimately needed. Well, it would be nice to think so. I mean, you mentioned the banks. You have to say the banks have been pretty much a horror story for the last 10 years, ever since the financial crisis in terms sure. of the investment. They have been paying, uh, started to pay dividends again. I mean, Lloyd's only started quite recently. Um, they have been paying dividends again. Um, but, uh, and their balance sheets are in much better shape going into this crisis than they were uh, at the time of the last financial crisis. But, um, and they are a very big part of the income that is paid out of the UK market. Um, but I would, uh, I would caution against expecting some kind of bonanza until or unless the economic climate changes. I mean, the real problem for the banks is that with, with zero or negative interest rates, they're just not, not in a position to make enough money, basically, to, uh, uh, to really earn significant, uh, make significant profits over the next few years. So until we see a change in that regime, I don't think we're going to see a huge bonanza from the banks. Obviously, some other cases like uh, retailers, if they can get their business models back working pretty quickly, uh, then I think we could expect to see dividends coming back as long as they haven't been damaged too much in the process of surviving this particular crisis. Uh, so it's very hard to see, but um, I don't think we should underestimate the amount of damage that this crisis is going to do to balance sheets and to, and to companies. I would caution against expecting, a, as it were, a kind of a, a huge rebound in dividend paying capacity. The share prices. I'm sure will uh, have already come back a little bit and they may come back a little bit further when we see an end to this whole thing. But I would be cautious about the outlook for dividends in particular. Sorry to be disappointing in that respect, but no, <laughs> that's not, how I see it. Not at all. And, and there's absolutely nothing to, to be said against having some uh, element of caution when we don't exactly know what the outlook is uh, for six to nine months, which of course is the sort of period that uh, uh, the market is trying to discount in, in normal times, which these most certainly aren't. But uh, thanks very much indeed for your time, Jonathan. That's been a fascinating discussion. That's uh, Jonathan Davis. And thank you, the listener, for tuning in as well. And, and do join us next time on the next Interactive Investor podcast. Goodbye.